Hi everyone, welcome to CI Diaries. Sponsored by Wayside Publishing, I'm Carrie Toth. And I'm Christy Placido. Welcome to our final episode in our special series, Robust Reading. So in part one of Robust Reading, we talked to you about pre-teaching, vocabulary, and structures, which we call establishing meaning. And then in part two, we spoke to you about how to select a text that's going to be a great fit for your students. And today we're going to talk about... Like follow-up activities. What do you do once you're reading this text? How do you... How do you interact with it? What do you do alongside the text to keep the reading engaging? Right. Um, When I think about follow-up activities to a text that I'm using in class, I always like to think in terms of what are the things that I like to do during the reading, Mm -hmm. like alongside the chapter, as I'm reading along during the chapter, versus the things that I like to do immediately following the chapter. You know, I really, I break them down. And honestly, there are even some things that I like to do pre reading the chapter. So maybe mm-hmm. we really would break them down into three different groups of things right. that we would do just before we read the chapter of the reader, just, you know, alongside as we were reading along with the chapter mm-hmm. of the reader and, you know, things that are activities or follow-ups that we would do post reading the chapter of a reader. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I also would say that I think a lot of times when I talk to teachers, they want to know kind of like a formula, you know, they want to know like what I do this, I do this, and then I do this. And I always tell people that when you're first learning something, it's kind of like you're following a recipe, but then as you get better at it, it's like you're learning to cook, right? And you're not following a recipe anymore, but you're like, okay, I'm going to try this spice. So it's not like a formulaic type of thing. And you you do have some room to kind of put your own little expression in there of what you'd like to do. But I definitely Agreed. think there there is a general pattern of we do, there's certain types of things we do pre-reading, then we read. And I, I know a lot of teachers sometimes are kind of like, well, what do I actually do? Like, how do we read? <laughs> and then yes. and then we do follow up. So def- that is definitely kind of the pattern. But then there's a lot of flexibility within that pattern. Agree with that. I think before reading, I tend to do, and sometimes the teacher's guides, if I am looking at a book that I'm going to adopt for my classroom, I would definitely look for a book with a strong teacher's guide because a lot of times those come, I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. And Mm -hmm. so having, Mm -hmm. having a book that has a strong teacher's guide is important. And a lot of times they have Uh, One of the things I like about the Fluency Matters and uh, Wayside books that we use is that they have those pre-reading kind of context clues or Mm -hmm. pre-reading fast match activities where I can do a little vocabulary exercise Mm -hmm. where I can show the students, look what you already know. Um, You know, let's look at these cognates that are present in the chapters because Mm -hmm. we've talked about this before in episodes. Kids don't always realize that a cognate is a cognate. So just calling their attention to the fact Mm -hmm. that, oh, oh, I do know that word. I just didn't realize I knew that word. Right. I mean, we're we're literally just giving them tools to help them process the reading. So that that's all pre-reading is. And I think when you have something that you know is going to be just inherently very easy for your students, 
you're not going to need to do as much pre-reading as you would with something that's got a little bit more uncertainty to it. Maybe there's something cultural that, that's unfamiliar to them, or there, there are going to be like several new vocabulary words in the chapter. You're going to approach something like that differently than you would if it was just really straightforward and super comprehensible. And that's another reason that a teacher's guide is so wonderful. If there is a cultural thing that does need a little front loading, a lot of times there'll be a pre-reading slideshow that you can go Mm -hmm. through to kind of uh, give them some cultural background before they dive Mm -hmm. into a chapter. Um, We, you know, sometimes we're so into cultural topics because we've been to a country and we're so excited about teaching Mm -hmm. our students about this country, but they just don't have that same excitement that we have Mm -hmm. Because they haven't been there and they haven't experienced right. that place. And, you know, we're, we're so passionate about these places that we've traveled because they become part of our heart. And, and mm-hmm. to share that with them once they see some pictures and once they, you know, once they've kind of been there on a virtual trip with us, you know, that helps them get a little more invested alongside us. Yeah. I also just am a huge believer in, in personalizing everything, you know, bringing whatever whatever it is that you're teaching your students about finding ways to connect kids to that content um finding ways to connect something in their lives or their culture with whatever they're going to be experiencing in the classroom and there are always ways that you can make those connections i mean if you're reading about and that's that actful interculturality mm-hmm. piece to connect their right. own culture mm-hmm. with the cultures they're studying and they just they invest more in it when they feel that there are some connections that they can they can find. Yes. So let's talk about what actually happens when you're so you've done some pre-reading and now the students are sitting in the class, books are in their hands. What do you actually do? Because I feel like teachers often are that's the part that kind of feels scary to them. Like, I don't know what to do now. Like, we did these activities, but now we have these books. And it's it seems so silly when you think about it because, well, you read. But, like, what does that process look like? You know, one of the things that I like that you do um, is that sometimes Christy will put up on her screen, you know, in the reading, the actual reading time, I think that it's important to to read it, but not drag it out. Some of the things that kids say, you know, when they come in from reading from English class, you know, they read novels for, you know, they might read Of Mice and Men for six weeks in English class. And so they get to feeling that a novel just like takes this, forever it's like this, to get And they read through. it for six weeks. I know. Right? <laughs> And so we don't want them to carry that feeling. And so I'm not saying that you have to bore through a a, a reader in your classroom in five days. But what I'm saying is that we want to get through the text in a, you know, in a, in a timely manner in the class. And so, um, to go in and to sit down and to make the reading feel like kind of an experience to them at the beginning of the class and then get to the follow-up. So I love that. Christy kind of sets the mood like she'll put on her big screen in the classroom. She'll have if it's set in a restaurant, she'll have an image of a restaurant up on the screen in the classroom. And so the scene is set there in a restaurant and sometimes she'll have like a little mood music playing in the background. So as the students come in, 
they're sitting down to this really light mood music playing, you know, with like maybe a restaurant themed like instrumental music. And they've got the, the restaurants in the background and then they read through this chapter. So things like that are helpful in in setting the scene for the chapter that you're about to read. And then really, it's about reading the chapter together and trying to make it comprehensible and enjoyable to the students who you're reading it with. Mm -hmm. So Carrie, how much translation do you do when you're reading with your students? It depends on the level. When we are reading our very first book Mm -hmm. in level one Spanish, we almost go line for line on translation. You know, me volleyballing back to them, making Mm -hmm. sure, because I want every kid in that classroom to feel successful. Now, when Mm -hmm. we're in level four, I don't have to translate with them like that. You know, when we come to a word that I think might be a stumper or, you know, at the end of a paragraph, we might go through and I might ask them some comprehension questions. You know, I'm not even really translating. I'm just asking them comprehension questions or I might ask them to, you know, translate a sentence for me just to make sure that they understood it. But you know, that's going to vary level by level. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're with your novices, they need Mm -hmm. more just check and give me the translation back because I need to see if you're understanding. When you're with your intermediates, you don't need a translation to check comprehension. You need some comprehension questions to check comprehension. Right. I I would say I I totally agree with that. When I'm working with a novice class, I, I do start out going sentence by sentence. I mean, I will read it in Spanish. I will ask them to tell me what it means in English. That doesn't mean like a a strict word by word, like it has to be exact type of translation, but just like, tell me that you understood it. And then I like to kind of, as soon as I'm able to, I like to transition into where maybe I'm reading a sentence and I'm just asking them what one word in the sentence means. Yes. And then maybe throwing some comprehension questions at them as well. Like not, not always going back to that translation, but I think it's important for us to remember that they are going to process their second language through their first language, whether we like it or not. So if we if we speak the same first language as our students, now if, you, if you're an ESL teacher, <laughs> this is gonna be a whole different approach, <laughs> but if, yes. if, you, if you and your students share a common language, why not capitalize on that? You know, why, why waste our resource that's so valuable? I mean, that's just the quickest, easiest way to make sure that comprehension is actually taking place. And especially when reading skill is well known in the United States to be low. Like we know Mm -hmm. that we have struggling readers across the board. You can ask the English department at your school that reading Mm -hmm. levels, Lexile levels are very low across the board. And so this is Mm -hmm. somewhere that we know our students struggle. And so being able to scaffold them in their reading is something that we can help them with um, just by adding this little bit of translation. Christy, when you read with your students, do you do a lot of reading aloud, like the, a lot of the reading aloud yourself? I do. And I find that my students really prefer that for the most part. Um, uh, even in my upper levels, I have always found that students like to be read to. And in fact, we, we affectionately call it story time. And I often will ask my students if they want to come and sit on the floor 
And many of them, my freshmen love to sit on the floor and my seniors love to sit on the floor. And I'll pull up my chair just like I'm Miss Frizzle and they'll all sit around me and the kids that don't want to sit on the floor, they just pull up a chair and it's fun. And it's kind of like a little bonding experience too. I mean, I think big kids like to to feel that nostalgia of like being an elementary student sitting around their teacher. And we don't they always do. read all together. Um, I think that that's an option I like to have available to my students, but as they get more confident in their own ability to read, I start to give them a little bit more freedom too, if they want to try reading on their own. And I know, I know you do something similar with your, your concept of reading club. Yes, we do. We, I would say that probably 75% of the time we read all together and then Mm -hmm. maybe 25% of a reader, they have a little more independence, but for me, and this is moving into our last point, um, Mm -hmm. when we read together, all of these, you know, we do sometimes we'll read together and we'll do a smash doodle, one of Martina Bex's activities, you know, as we read together, they're kind of doodling the activities, Mm -hmm. um, or doodling what they hear. Mm -hmm. Um, but then all of that reading moves us forward to getting to the follow-up. And the follow-up is where they really process what we've read. And so when you have the students in charge of reading, A, they don't always process it as well as when we are there to ask all the comprehension questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But B, it goes a lot slower. And so you don't get to those follow-up activities. And and the follow-up activities are where the real engagement in the classroom comes in. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, having the teacher leading the reading part can be very valuable because then you have time. If the reading takes you about 20 minutes of the class, then you get 25 or 28 or 30 minutes of your class period to do some kind of a really fun follow-up. And so that's what we'd like to talk next. Like if you have this reading chunk at the beginning, that's kind of teacher led where you read aloud with the students, where you really are asking comprehension questions, where you have the mood music, where, where you're reading all together as a class, then what do you do for, what are your favorite follow-ups whenever you finish a reading? What are some of your favorite ways to follow up a chapter? I mean, my go-to is usually some form of reader's theater. Um, and I have a lot of different variations on reader's theater that I do. Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. So one that I love to do, and I don't do any of these all the time. I mean, I definitely try to keep keep everything varied. I like to keep them kind of, you know, on their toes and not doing the same thing all the time. But I do like the idea of creating some kind of dramatization of whatever we just read. Um, So one thing I do pretty frequently is I'll just have some actors get up and I will kind of coach them through reenacting in the scene. And I try to I try to not do the entire chapter. I think that gets really really out of hand and it's too long it gets boring i i will choose a scene from the chapter that's really short and will just act out that one little scene and if there's dialogue if there's i first of all don't try to incorporate a lot of dialogue in readers theater i don't know how you feel about that carrie no same (laughs) (laughs) try to pick an um, actiony scene with not as much yeah yeah 
Now, if there is dialogue, um, my favorite little trick is to, I will stand behind them and kind of be their voice and then they'll just move yeah. their mouth like they're a puppet. <laughs> and that's actually yep. really funny. Same. It's really funny to watch. So the class enjoys that. Um, but sometimes I'll even do just like a freeze frame where I'll just have students kind of create a little still vignette of different parts of the scene and then I'll take photos of it. And then I'll put those photos in a slideshow. And then the next day we can review what we read before we read the next chapter. We can review what was happening in the previous chapter by looking at these photos. And they love it because they love to see themselves and they love to see their, their friends and their classmates. So it's, it's yes. always fun to incorporate the students into the lesson. And I also like to have them draw pictures. Like you mentioned the smash doodle. Um, yes. Drawing is a great way to get them to process the text again. And I think that's a lot of what we're doing is we're trying to get them to process that text a second time or a third time and just get get their attention on the text without it feeling boring or repetitive. I agree with you. One That's why one of my favorite activities for a follow-up is your game, The Scene Machine. Um, mm -hmm. One of Christy's games is The Scene Machine. I just take a big piece of butcher paper and I put students in groups of four and they kind of lay down on the floor with their butcher paper and they have the text in hand and they go through the chapter and then, you know, whatever we've read so far. So if we're on chapter five, they have all of the first five chapters to work with. Mm -hmm. And each student in the group has to pick a different scene from those first five chapters and they illustrate it on this piece of butcher paper. So it's divided into four quadrants. They each illustrate a scene. But then they use the text, so they're rereading in the text, which is awesome. Like anytime you can get them digging back into the text and rereading, and now they have to take two different index cards, and on each index card, they write a different sentence directly from the text that describes what's happening in their illustration. So um, they have these two index cards with their sentences, and then they scramble up all the eight index cards from their group, and then the other groups move around like game boards and they have to match up which sentences go with which illustrations. And so it lets every group in the room, you know, they're getting all these repeated exposures to all the things that have happened in the text so far. So um, I love these opportunities to follow up and, and reread the text. Yeah, and the best thing for me about Scene Machine is it's really no prep. If you have the supplies in your classroom, you just pull those supplies out and and you go. I mean, there's you don't you have set to do them anything. Loose. They're exactly. Doing it. I also so, like us. Cindy Hitz's marker partner because that's another mm. no prep game. You you literally just need any anytime you have some true false questions. If you have a teacher's guide for a reader and you have some true false questions, it's a game that's really engaging to follow up a chapter. You just line the kids up in two rows facing each other, um, two teams facing each other and set a marker board marker on the ground in between the two rows uh, so that each pair of students has a marker to grab. And you ask the true, you say the true or false statement. And if it's true, the students try to be the first to grab the marker that's between mm -hmm. them. And the team with the most marker grabs at the end is the winner. And uh, it's just such a fun, 
fun game to play as a follow-up, but it gets them listening. Like it gets them listening and thinking about and processing that text. Like they don't want to grab it if it's false. So they have to really be (laughs) attentive to what you're saying. (laughs) That one too can get a little out of hand. I do play it, but you really have to prep the students about your expectations before you do a game like that because it can get a a little heated sometimes. So are there any other follow-up activities that you feel are just like a must mention? I think that um, any type of follow-up that gives repeated input exposure, like I just, I don't think you can go wrong with any follow-up that gives input-based exposure. Um, Blukit, like all of those game-based things, I think you can make those input-based by making them comprehension questions that you're mm-hmm. finding the answer to or sentence, you know, mm-hmm. gap-fill kinds of exercises. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we're looking for. When you're looking for a type of follow-up that really enriches what you've read, that's the kind of thing that you're looking for, something that gets students. Um, when we think about language, like, to be higher on Bloom's taxonomy, it's not just about remembering, it's about applying. And so, you know, get them really thinking about and applying what they know, like where they have to to think about and process what they learned in that chapter. Mm-hmm. Thank you, that is awesome. And so I wanted to finish off um, our, this is a question that we got in the email, in our email, and I wanted to just address this question. And I would also like to encourage any of you who might have questions for us or topics that you'd like us to explore, um, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. So we got the question, what do you think is essential to have on your wall? So Carrie, what are the, what are the, primary things that you feel like just absolutely you need to have as a resource on your wall for your students to see? I have the actual proficiency descriptors. I have a printable set of proficiency descriptors that are on my wall because for me, it has eliminated the whole, how many words does this have to be? Because I can just point and say, hey, remember, we're shooting to become intermediates. And so this is what we need to do. I have uh, rejoinders and I have the question words. And then I have some basic past tense verbs. And mm-hmm. and that's what, I, that's what I keep up all of the time. And so those mm-hmm. things really help me just have a basic word wall uh, that mm-hmm. they can refer to all the time. What about you? Yeah, I would say it's pretty similar for me. Now, I did retire from the classroom this past year, so I did have to take everything off my wall. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) You guys, Christy's retired. Well, I have a new job now, so I'm not really fully retired. That's true. (laughs) Christy's doing new business. I am. So I feel like what's, for me, the thing that I use the most on my wall is my question word posters. I just feel like, I, I yes. have my laser pointer in my hand almost all the time. And I'm just in my novice level classes, especially I'm always pointing at those um, question words. And I don't really even think you need to have posters. You could just have them like written on your dry erase board. And but something to refer to, because I think um, oftentimes when students don't understand a question, at the novice level, especially, they probably didn't get the first word of the question. Yes. So I agree with you 100 percent. 
I do also really like to use rejoinders. I don't tend to have my rejoinders posters front and center. I tend to have them kind of sprinkled around the room. Uh, but I find that students really enjoy being able to have some instant language to use. And they do bring those into our class discussions because they, I think they think they're being cute. Um, but I love it. I mean, please, please use my rejoinder posters to be cute. I am here for it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. And we would love to hear from you. So feel free to leave us a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast or on our YouTube channel. Send us an email. We would love to hear from you. And we look forward to seeing you again next time. See you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye.